Well, good morning. My name is Steve Doucette, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it's always a privilege and an honor to teach God's Word to you, as is today, no different. I love digging into God's Word, I love studying God's Word, and I love relaying God's Word and teaching it. So, it's a joy for me this morning um, to teach, and I'm going to teach out of a book that we haven't taught out of in a, maybe a while, or maybe not, I don't know, I, I haven't heard it, um, but it's a book of Revelation. I picked a passage out of Revelation that we could look at and, and really think about and ponder, and, and it talks to the church, so maybe we can take time this morning to think about our church. We should think about our church and the state of our church and where we're at, and maybe this will give us some pause and good reflection on our lives as the people of the church of God. How do you know when a church is doing good? You know, as people, how do we know when a church is doing good? How do we know when our church is doing well? Now, now again, the church is the people. It's not the building. It's the people that occupy the building. That is the church. We are the church. And how do you know when we're doing well? From the outside, you could look at, is the church full? Is it got a lot of people? Is it active? Um, is that how we tell if a church is doing well? Some churches grow rather big, rather large. They grow out of their buildings. They grow into stadiums. Does that mean that that church is actually doing well by God's standard? You could say, well, some churches are really small and no one shows up. And for years and years, maybe they have 20 people or 40 people or 50 people. Is that how we tell how a church is doing? When the numbers are low, we, we might say, oh, that church must not be doing well. Or the numbers are high, we say, well, that church is doing well. Or is it by the works? that they do and how they're affecting people around them. We would say the fruit of their ministry. Would we look at that and let that be the sole thing that we go after the church or use as a way of measuring how that church is doing or the church in general? Well, you know, that's all we can do, right? All we can do is look on the outside. All we can do is have conversations with people. And all we can do is listen and try to assess how a church is doing, our church is doing. But Jesus understands the motives and intentions in the hearts of the people, the church. And that's exactly what he addresses in this letter where we're going to be looking. He addresses that very thing down deeper than just the outside, down deeper than just the work that's going on. But he gets to the actual heart of what's in the center, if you will, at the center of the church. That makes it a very, very beautiful passage. This is written by John. And John is on an island and John gets a vision. And in chapter 1, he he looks and he sees this vision. I want to read it to you because I want you to start off by having this awe of who God is. If you remember, the last time I was up here, I said, I don't think the church has the fear of God. I think a lot of people have lost that fear of God. And the fear of God is the reverence and the awe of who he really is. And boy, I tell you, if you read the book of Revelation, you come to an understanding that this is a book of end times. What's going to happen? And you see Jesus coming back with full power and full authority, and that will bring awe back. But even at the very beginning, it's beautiful how John describes it. Chapter 1, starting at verse 12. He says, Then I turn to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed 
with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death in Hades. I mean, can you imagine? You got to understand, John is getting a vision. What makes the, the book of Revelation a little confusion is there's a lot of imagery in there because John is seeing things in the future, things that have not yet been, things that is, they're very hard to describe. And the glory of God, by the way, is something that's very hard to describe. And he's using everything he can to describe it to us, to write it down so that we might understand. And it was so magnificent and so glorious that he fell on his face as though dead. You see, that's that the fear of the Lord I'm talking about. That's the reference. That's the honor of who he is. And so many times we get a, a false view. We, we take away God's glory and we start bringing him down and make him even kind of with us. And he's our buddy and he's our friend. And he, you know, he, he's all these different things. Instead of being this God, this holy one, set apart with full power, full strength, full knowledge of everything, and yet, he loved us. He created us in his image so that you and I could be representatives for the king. I mean, to fall over as though you're dead. This is one that's doing the work of God. This is one that's close to God, close enough that God would give him a vision and yet the glory is so overwhelming that he would fall over as a dead man. Oh, that says something about the glory of God, doesn't it? Let's go to our passage. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. I'm going to read the whole thing. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place 
unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Beautiful passage. Letter written to the church at Ephesus. It's interesting. You could say that this is the second letter because you know about Ephesians. That's the first letter that goes to the church. But interestingly, this is a second letter that's coming from Christ to that church. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If we go back to chapter 1, you'll understand this a little bit more. Right at the end, chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. That word means messenger are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we understand that the stars are the angels, the messengers. Not really clear, because again, imagery, what that means. We don't see anywhere in Scripture that it talks about angels being over churches. So we would assume, since it says messenger, it's a messenger from the church, maybe a pastor or an elder, someone that has some kind of lead in that church. But Christ holds them, the seven stars, these seven angel messengers in his right hand. The hand of authority. The hand of protection. The hand of Christ, because he is the head of the church. The church is his church. And he wants to make it clear, I am the head of the church, and I take care of the church, and the church follows me because it's my church. The right hand is a place of sovereign protection and divine authority. He has authority over the churches. The word of God is what governs the church. We have an elder board in this church, and the elder board is responsible for this, the spiritual oversight of everything that goes on. We check the scriptures and make sure we're following the scriptures and we're teaching in the scriptures and everything follows the scriptures because we understand this is the word of God. And it's not about us. It's not about man. It's not about what we want, but it's about what God wants for his church. And Jesus is at the head of that. When I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of John 10. John 10, I love the chapter John 10 because it's the good shepherd. It's Jesus speaking about him being the good shepherd. And it says this, verse 27 and 28. Jesus speaking, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Once, once Jesus has this control, he decides. And there's nothing you or I can do about it. 
And he's saying, listen, these, this is my church. This letter that I'm writing to, these seven churches in total, but this one in Ephesus, it's my church. And I hold this leader right here. Divine protection and divine authority. He goes on. Verse 2 says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. Works. That's when we look and we say we see the fruit. We see the works that are going on, the things that would honor God. Toil is the, the, what goes in back of the works. It's the pressure. It's the blood, sweat, and tears. It's the effort. That's what the toil is for these works. And Jesus is saying, I see your works, and I see the effort that you're putting into the works. And I see your patient endurance. You're a church that has gone on. You've gone on and you've endured things. You've endured the world. The world tries to come against you, but you've endured. You've stood up through it. Not only did they start a ministry, they continued in their ministry. They didn't allow false teaching to come into the church. They were like the Bereans in Acts, that they would test it to the scriptures. They wouldn't just take a word of someone because he said he was an apostle and he had this word. They would check it to scriptures. And if they found them to be false, they would remove them from the church. They had nothing to do with them. They guarded the word of God, the purity of the church. He goes on and he says, enduring, bearing up, not growing weary. And I love that because in Acts, you can actually see that there was definitely, it wasn't easy for that church at Ephesus. But yet they endured. but yet they endured. How are we doing in enduring? How are we doing in the works? Why are we doing the works that we do? What is the motivation in back of everything that we're doing? In Acts 19, you can hear some of the pressure they had. I'll read you verses 26 and 27. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul... This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many of people, saying that of the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into destitute, 
but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis, Artemis, which is also Diana, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. It's talking about a time where the church was enduring, a time where the church was growing, a time when the church was going against falsehood. And this idol Diana was one of the seven wonders in the world. And as he said, all of Asia, all of the world worshipped this. And all these idol worshippers would come and they would buy these little trinkets that were made by hand as little trinkets for for the idol. And they would save them or wear them or put them in their homes. And these people were making money at it. But as the truth and the, truth in the church endured, and as the church began or kept growing, it was obviously affecting the idol worship that was going on outside. So these people would gather, and all of a sudden this persecution, this pressure against the church would start happening. But Jesus says, you patiently endure. You keep on going. I think that's a lesson for us. That the world may come against us, the world may have all different ideas, but we need to be one that tests everything in the scripture. We need the one that be the ones that endure. We need to be the church that keeps pressing on to his will. For his namesake, for his glory. So these things, they were doing well in the church. So if we were to visit the church and we'd see these things, we'd say, oh, this church is doing really good. I mean, great things are happening. Jesus is commending them for these great things that are going on in the church. But look what he says next. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. This is no small deal. To the one that loved us so much, I mean, God the Father would send his son to die that you and I might have life and life eternal. As scripture says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we were worthy. It wasn't that we did enough things right. It wasn't that we had enough works. It's because he loved us. The one that would give the greatest commandment to love God. The one that would demonstrate what it looks like to love to walk, to minister, to spend time with, to invest in the lives of others, to speak truth to them, to that one to say to the church, you've lost your first love. Come on. Revelation 1, 5 to 6 says this, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And yet he looks at this church and he says, you lost that love you had at first. He's not saying you lost all your love. He's not saying you don't believe in God anymore. He's not saying you don't understand salvation. He's saying you lost that fervor that you had at the beginning. I want you to think back. I want you to take a moment and think back when you first came to faith. Just play it in your head. had to be a reason there had to be something going on in your life and then this good news just came upon you the good news the gospel of jesus christ someone shared it with you and all of a sudden you understood for the first time how much god loved you and you said you know what god everything i surrender it all to you And you started coming to church and you wanted to get involved and you wanted to be in people's lives. Maybe you wanted to share that message with other people. You just had to get it out there. There was something different and you knew it. There was something that changed. Maybe it was just, it wasn't maybe that exciting for you, but maybe it was just something. All of a sudden I understand what life's all about. All of a sudden I understand purpose. All of a sudden I understand it's not about me, but it's about God. All of a sudden, I'm grabbing, I'm I'm grasping on this great love that God has for me and the plan that he has for my life. That he's laid out good works for me to walk in, that he gives me warnings in the scripture, and those warnings keep me on the right path so that I might have joy and my joy might be complete. And I feel his peace and I feel his comfort through all things, even when there's trials in my life because my hope is secure in eternity through Christ who loves me, who will never let me go, who no one can snatch me from his hand. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit teaches me and guides me through life and gives me power and conviction. Do you remember? Their love once motivated everything they did, but that started to fall. It started to cool. And they got into routine. Doesn't mean they didn't believe. They got into routine. The love, the fervor, the fire wasn't being kindled. Instead, it was in danger of going out. No longer were they motivated by love, but they were just going through in the things that they always knew from the time they were first saved. Jude is another book that's not read that often, and I pulled a verse out of there. Actually, two verses. Jude, verse 20 and 23, it says this, But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Reverence for God, understanding his love, being passionate about that relationship. They still claim the truth, but they no longer passionately, passionately love him who is the truth. What about our church? What about the church in general? How do we heed this warning? How do we take this to heart? How do we work through this as we leave this place? Not that it'd be another lesson so you have more knowledge, but how do we take this to heart? It's not a small deal. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, this is what he said in Matthew 22. He was asked, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. How are we doing? I've taught you about loving the Lord with everything, but what about your love for others in the church? Is that growing cold? Is that getting calloused? How much concern do you have for other people in the church? People you don't know. People that come in on a Sunday. People who share the same faith as you share. See, it's a, it's a great thing. We have this unity in the gospel. All believers, we're in one family together. It's the universal church all around the globe. If you repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior believing that he died for your sins and he rose again, you will be saved. And once saved, Scripture says you were not not a people, but now you are a people of God. How is your love for the brethren? How is your love for others? You see, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say your love for Christ has diminished. He says the love you had at first is what you've abandoned. Jesus says a new commandment I give you is this, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The watching world will say something different about those people they really care and love one another they must be followers of christ what takes us away from this love idolatry takes us away from this love idolatry is something that you put your worship into that you spend more time more effort more of your energy worshiping than god 
you think about it more than you do your Lord. That's what an idol is. An idol can actually be a good thing. It can be something good in your life, but you put it up on the throne, if you will, and you remove God off of the throne because you give it all your time and all your energies. You see, we were born to worship. That's a fact. And you will worship something. It will be money. It will be your job. It will be another person. It will be what people think of you. You'll worship something. You'll worship comfort. You'll worship your health, being healthy. You'll worship something. God is the only thing worthy of our full worship. Our love can roll, run cold when we worship money. It talks about that in 1 Timothy, that money can be the root of all evil. Or when we worship ourselves, our own selfish desires. It talks about that in James and many other places, but narcissism. Concentrating on yourself, it's all about me, it's not about God. And this gets really ugly when it comes to a church because all of a sudden we're consumers and we walk in the doors and we start complaining about everything that's going on. Too hot, too cold, music's too loud, it's too soft, not the right kind. The message is just not quite right. The, the ministries that are going on, they just don't fit our needs. Well, there's not enough for me to do, there's not enough. And see, it's all self-focused. Instead, we should be coming through the doors and saying, okay, Lord, give me eyes to see the person I can minister to today. Give me eyes to see, Lord, how I can be a benefit to your church, your body. You see, your love starts running cold because all of a sudden you start thinking about yourself. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 7 that even marriage... It divides our devotion to God. So even when you're married, when you're single, you have all this time to devote it right to God and to the worship of God. But once you get married, all of a sudden you're, you're dividing that devotion. You have to devote some time, obviously, to your spouse. But even that can go lopsided. So he even gives a warning in that. Again, a good thing. First John talks about the world. If you love the world then the love of God can't be in you. The, the system of the world, the things of the world, the things that oppose God. And that can pull you away from that love. That can cool off that love that you have for Christ because you get so consumed in the world. Talked about idols. You can look at that in 1 John 5.21. And again, an idol can be good things as well. And listen to this passage in Matthew 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Perspective. Jesus says, I have to be the first in your heart. Those children, they're a gift from me. That wife, that's that husband, that's a gift. I have to be first. Nothing can come before me. Once you start letting things come before the love that you have for Christ, all of a sudden you'll be diminished and pulled away. That love will be starting to run cold. I wrote this down. The cooling of the heart 
which had overtaken them in relationship to God was a dangerous forerunner of spiritual apathy, which later was to erase all Christian testimony in this important center of Christian influence. Thus, it has ever been in the history of the church, first a cooling of spiritual love, then the love of God replaced by the love for things of the world. With resulting compromise and spiritual corruption, this is followed by departure from the faith and loss of effective spiritual testimony. And it brings us to our next verse. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, the lampstand is the church, and it's a beautiful picture of the church because the church is called to be the light and the salt of the earth. So in Matthew 5, it says, Let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The light is a reflection of Jesus in our lives, Jesus in this place, Jesus in this church. It's just like the moon. The moon sits up there in the sky, and when it's lit up, it's not lit up by its own power. Instead, it's lit up by the sun reflecting off of it, right? So as the sun reflects off the moon, we get light from the moon. In the same way, the church gets Jesus reflecting off of it and this light of glory goes out for the world to see. And that's a picture of the lampstand. The lampstand is this church. is supposed to be this light. And the warning is, if you don't repent and turn back, that I'm going to remove that lampstand and you'll no longer be that light. Now again, it's very important to understand he didn't say you lost all your love. He didn't say you have a hate for God now. He's saying you lost the love you had at first. He didn't say you weren't doing anything right. He didn't say some of those things, you're, you're, you're doing nothing right at all. Everything you're doing is wrong. Instead, he says, no, here's a list of the things that you're doing well. But I do have this against you. And if it's not taken care of, I'm going to remove that lampstand. So I'm going to ask you right now to think back. And if you've lost that passion for the Lord, if you've lost that love that you had at first, I want you to think back and I want you to identify what it is that's crowding that out, what it is that's taking it away. I want you to spend time to think about it because I don't know what your life looks like when you leave this room. And when you leave this room, you might forget all about this message. And I want you to take time just to think, what is it that you're hanging on to that's depleting, that's taking away, that's stealing what's rightfully God's? And you need to repent. You know, we don't like saying that word. A lot of people don't like saying that word. I like saying that word. We need to repent. We need to humble ourselves and, and understand what we're doing wrong. And we need to identify it and claim it and then say, God, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. 
Listen, he just showed us he could take the lampstand away. I don't want to be a church that's ineffective. I don't want to be a church that the light goes out. I want to be a church that's a shining light for Christ. Amen? So we got to be humble enough to say, okay, I'm going to think back. What is it? When did I start cooling off? What was it that was in my life? And I'm going to give that. I'm going to take it, own it, and I'm going to repent. Repent means you turn from it. It's a turning, a 180-degree turn. You say, I identify that this is against God. This is not of God. This is opposing God. I don't want it in my life anymore. You confess it before God. You ask for forgiveness. And it says in scriptures, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. So we have the assurance he'll do that. Sometimes, though, our pride stops us. That's why I want you to think. You thought back when you were first saved. You were thought back about how great that was. Do you still feel that way? Has some kind of worry crept in or anxiety? You find yourself thinking, are, are you not reading the word? Are you not spending time in prayer? Are you not praying for others? Do you come to church like once, twice a month? Is it just not that important? Are you riding on the once saved, always saved, everybody's fine, I'm fine, and not worrying about like representing the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Man, God of heaven, the one who created everything loves you. He wants that relationship with you. This may be a tough passage, but i got to tell you something. There's a lot of hope in this passage. Because he's saying, repent and turn back to me. In other words, you can have that love back, but you have to do something about it. He's saying that lampstand is still there, and I want it to still be there. Otherwise, I wouldn't be taking the time to write this letter out to the churches with the warnings in them, with instruction on what to do. He goes on in the next verse, and again, something they're doing well. In the next verse, it says, Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not much is known about who this sect was. It's just obvious in the scripture that they were going against God's word. There were people that didn't follow God. They had some kind of false teaching that were pulling people away. Later on in Revelation, you'll see one of the churches is actually following the teachings of that, and God has that against them, that they're following their teaching. doesn't really matter what that teaching was other than it was against God's teaching. And he says, in this I have, you hate the works. Just like they would, they would identify false, false apostles and send them out, he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And that hate is a really heavy word, right? But you have to understand it. Because we like to say, well, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. But in here, God hates people who teach false doctrine. People that are evil, that are purposely going against the things of God. In fact, I'm going to read you some verses. 
Romans 12, 9 says this, Let love be genuine, adhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Psalm 97, 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 101, 3 and 4, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Amos 5.15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. God is holy, set apart. He hated this teaching that was going against his word. Paul, in the letter to Galatians, he says there's only one gospel. There's no other gospel. But if anyone teaches another gospel, let them be anathema. Another word, let them be accursed. That's what he's saying. If anyone teaches another gospel, let them be accursed. Coming from the mouth of Paul. So they were doing good things. They were doing good things, but yet God had this one thing against them. Their heart seemed to be growing cold. They had lost that love that they had at first. And then we have the ending to the letter. The ending's really interesting. In verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That same phrase is written to all seven churches at the end of the letter. And I want you to understand that in that phrase, the word is churches. You see, he writes to a specific church and a specific problem. But then he gives us this understanding that the church in general, that every church that this is read to, let them hear these words. In fact, you're going to go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. And listen what it says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And in chapter 1, it says the time is near. There's a lot going on in the world today, isn't there? Eight-point-something earthquake. We have hurricanes going rampant. We got wars in the Middle East. We got rumors of war with North Korea. We got things that are wrong being called right and things that are right being called wrong. And the whole system of the world is kind of chaotic right now. And you notice that a lot of people are claiming, well, this is like the end, and this is the end. And a lot of those signs are written in Scripture about being the end. In fact, if you study the book of Revelation, you get a lot of that in there. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not going to tell you the world's going to end next week or next month. I'm just telling you that it's evident 
that the world is topsy-turvy. That it's in disarray. And the church has to stay strong. The church has to hear this message. The church has to hear this message and take it to heart and evaluate every single one of us what's really going on so that we don't fall into that trap of growing cold, walking away from the love that we had at first. And as we read this, it's a message to the churches. And his promise is to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I love that, right? The first time this tree is mentioned, it's mentioned in Genesis 2, 9. And it's mentioned that the tree of life is in the garden. Then later on in chapter 3, the tree is mentioned again, but it's after sin. And it's after the curse of sin and the tree is blocked off by a cherubim is blocking the tree. So the Adam and Eve can't get back to the tree and eat off of that tree. But then the beautiful thing is, it's mentioned again in the book of Revelation in the very last chapter. So if you go with me to chapter 22, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 2 says this, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month, the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations." Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And then there's also a warning in verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He's saying, he who conquers, he who is the overcomer, the overcomer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. That is eternal life, which is in the paradise of God, which is in heaven. The one that conquers, that makes it through, will enjoy eternal life in heaven with God forever. John 5, 5, 1 John 5, 5 says this, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Church, it's a hard message, but it's a great message. You see, he was still the head of the church, and Jesus is the head of this church. And if he walked through the doors, I don't know what he'd see. He'd see different things in the lives of different people. But this is definitely a warning, a wake-up call to the church. Say, okay, how is your love that you had at first? When you first understood the greatness of God, the love of God, the mercies of God, How is your love? And it's a warning. If he came through those doors, what would he say? In your heart. And you see, that's a cool thing. He wants the church to be okay, and that's why he wrote the letter. 
And church, we're doing a lot of good things. We have a lot of good stuff going on. But if this is written and it's supposed to be directed and read out loud so that we can hear it, then we need to take the time to take it seriously and inspect or go after and look into our own hearts. Because I want to be a church that honors God, that glorifies God. He says, you can be. Just get back that love that you had at first. Get back into your word. Spend time in prayer. Get in fellowship. Get other believers about you. If you have questions, get the questions answered. Some of you maybe never have come to faith. And you're just trying to figure this whole thing out and you have questions. Find someone. Ask the questions that you have. Don't be afraid to ask any question. We want you to understand the love of God. We want you to understand who Jesus is. We want you to understand the God of Scripture, not the God of the world that's out there in all different flavors. And all different teachings. But we want you to know the true God. I'm going to ask Jason to come back up. And I'm going to ask you all to stand. The basket will still come around, but I'm going to ask you to get on your feet and let's sing this last song from our hearts. If you're a follower of Christ and, and right now you thought, I hope you thought back to when you first came to faith, I pray that that did something inside you to encourage you. And as you look at these songs, I pray that you just belt them out, sing them out, know that they're going to God, know that he's listening, know that he hears you. And church, it's good news. Jesus wants to be the head of the church. He is the head of the church, and he wants his church to have this bright light that brings honor and glory to his name, and we can be that church. Amen? So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Jesus, for the example that you lived, lived as you walked on this earth. And you told us to follow you. For those of us that are part of your family, we thank you for salvation, the joy of knowing we're going to spend an eternity with you. Lord, I confess that in my life, there's many things that pull me aside. There's many things that busy me up. There's many thing, things that dull my senses that, that kind of simmer down that fire, Lord. I don't want that to be. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict me and move in me and direct and guide me as well as everybody in this room to ways that I could get rid of that stuff and give you the full honor and full praise and full devotion that you deserve. Lord, I don't want this to be a church that's mediocre. I want this to be a church that's known for loving Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So Lord, we need you for that. Because it's all about you, it's not all about us. Redirect our thinking, Lord, where it's wrong. And as we sing this song, we pray that it honors you. We lift these words up, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.